Hi, my name's Henry. By the way, my mom is working for Birth Monopoly. I have a secret that I can't tell anybody. What I know about Birth Monopoly is not very much. This is Birth Aloud Radio with Kristen Piscucci. Today on Birth Aloud Radio, we have Amy Demke-Woods. She is a new mom and a gym junkie who comes from a large family in Utah and a few years ago moved to Lake Havasu, Arizona with her husband, who is a pharmacist. They had their first baby about eight months ago, and we connected through the Exposing the Silence Project. Amy also had heard a podcast with me about informed consent during pregnancy, and she had an experience that she wanted to share through the project, giving birth to her baby. Amy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. It's a big deal. There are a lot of people out there who can't share their stories, probably, you know, want to share their stories, but, you know, are not able to or don't have the capacity to do it at this time for one reason or another. So I know it, it means a lot to people. I'm glad I can be a voice and hopefully encourage other women to stand up and spread the word, talk about what happened to them, and hopefully it helps people. Yeah, thanks. It's been a little bit in the news lately. The woman in California who brought a lawsuit for having a cesarean without adequate anesthesia. And that caused quite a stir. Her story was all over the place. And I saw a lot of the comments, you know, there were a lot of people who said, that's unthinkable. And that hospital really, you know, fell down on the job to give her major surgery with no, no anesthesia. And then there were a lot of other people who said, well, birth is not a cakewalk and you should be happy you have a, a healthy baby. So Amy has sort of a similar story, which I will let you tell that whole thing, but it is a, it is a sort of timely story right now. And as she and I were chatting before we started recording, I think it's really time for women to start confronting that tripe about a healthy baby is all that matters because now here we have taken that to the extreme of we have a woman being cut open with no pain relief for no reason and having people say that, you know, she, that's what she gets. So Amy, let's start there. <laughs> it's kind of a long story. I'll just start, just start at the beginning. I had a very, very healthy pregnancy. I was low risk, no complications or anything. I exercised up until the day I delivered. I actually was due on Christmas day, but baby girl was nice and comfy and was not coming. They had scheduled me on to be induced on December 28th, but I had wanted a natural birth. And so I was really hoping that would be possible. So I canceled that induction on the 28th because I knew kind of the less medical intervention, the more chances I had of a natural non-medicated birth. The next day on the 29th, I went into a, my doctor's appointment and they had told me that if anything felt unusual or anything felt out of the ordinary, to not wait like the hour to do to count the kicks, but to just go to the hospital and get things checked out because I was overdue. So that night, I guess it went into the morning, on the 30th of December, I kind of felt less movement uh, than I normally do. So I called the hospital uh, and went down to get checked out. Uh, they hooked me up to a fetal monitor and they did an ultrasound to make sure everything was good. And everything was good. She was all of a sudden kicking a bunch, of course. But because I was past due, they decided to keep me and induce me. So you were 40 weeks and five days. Yes. Okay. So they induced me that morning. 
at about six in the morning, uh, Dr. Weiss broke my water. And then I kind of showered, got ready, and they started the oxytocin. Um, everything was going pretty well. I started at about three to four centimeters dilated. And then we were just doing the oxytocin little by little. That afternoon, uh, when the oxytocin had gotten to about a six, there was a little bit of fetal distress. So they came in, turned me on my side, gave me oxygen. And then per doctor's orders, we weren't going to go above a six again, but just kind of keep it a little bit lower so that way we kept the baby safe. So you were in the bed? I was. I Laboring? Was, yeah, I, well, I was moving around. But at that time, I think I was sitting on around the bed, but they just had me move to my left side. Okay. Some oxygen. Okay. All right. So it sounds like pretty chill. Yeah. Pretty. Chill. Other than like, you know, having to go through the induction in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Everything started off really good. The nurse that was there during the day, she was awesome. She was really supportive of natural birth and she just kind of let us do our thing. I was bouncing on the ball or I kind of did like the dancing position with my arms around the shoulder. And we were just kind of breathing through, just going through the contractions on our own. And I was getting, you know, labor was progressing. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely getting more painful, but totally manageable. Then at about six or seven o'clock, when the shift changed for the nurses, the night nurse came in and she upped my Pitocin from, she did it real fast from a five to a seven. And then in about a half an hour, she bumped it up to a 10. And that just took it. My contractions were all of a sudden just constant and nonstop. It went from the two to three minutes and with that little break in between to I, I couldn't move. I was kind of having trouble talking. It just, yeah, just, it was a nonstop, no relief. I just kind of felt like I went into a lot of stress all of a sudden from that bump. And did they talk to you about it? They did not talk to us. So my husband saw uh, her bump up the oxytocin and he stepped over and talked to her about it and said, Hey, we're not supposed to go above a six. The baby went into distress earlier. And her response was she just turned the monitor away so we couldn't see it. And she told him not to tell me. Of course, he immediately told me. And I, at that stage, that's where I was, I couldn't really do anything. I wasn't in a position to, I couldn't talk really. I was in a lot of pain, but um, that's where he kind of started really, really helping me out with um, kind of standing up for me. Kind of joked. He was my, he was my little doula. So I'm sorry. Let me just clarify. So like a doctor didn't, didn't have a discussion with you about we're going to bump up your Pitocin like pretty aggressively at this point? No. The nurse just came in and she just did it. And, and she didn't talk to you about it. And then. No, she did not. It was just my husband kind of paying attention and he caught her doing it and confronted her and she didn't change it. She just basically kind of tried to hide it from us. Kind of told them just don't tell your wife, leave it be type of a thing. So that's kind of when we knew that things were like, that's when it was kind of like, get our game face on. I guess I should back up a little bit. Going into our delivery here, we were a bit worried because we had kind of heard some uh, stories about people being forced into C-sections here at this hospital. So I had done a lot of prep and I had educated my husband a lot with real reasons for like a c-section or real reasons for them to do something so that way they couldn't just kind of make something up and tell us 
oh, we need to do a C-section because of, I think one of them we heard was, because uh, it looks like you have edema and there's a blood clot in your leg. So we need to do a C-section or just different things like that. So that's kind of when we knew to like, all right, this is what we prepared for. And also, sorry, just for part of that background, it wasn't like you had a lot of options. There's right. only two doctors in the town. There's only two doctors in the town. And one hospital. The next neighboring town, I would say with a good hospital, is about two and a half, three hours away. So, yeah, not any options. We had, we had debated on going back to Utah, where we were both from, to have the baby. But... Which is actually one of the better places in the country to have a baby. Yes. It has one of the lowest cesarean rates and it's got some good, some good access to some other, you know, some more options that you definitely didn't have. Yeah. We could go back in time. Definitely. <laughs> right. We made that decision. But we both actually, because we had prepared so much, we both felt comfortable and we both felt like everything was going to be okay. And... So we just kind of trusted ourselves and kept along with it here. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. All right, sorry, back to my story. Uh, so after she bumped up the oxytocin and I was having the, the nonstop contractions, about uh, just a little bit later, Dr. Weiss came in at, I think, just before 9 p.m. And she said that I needed to get an epidural because... Uh, my body couldn't relax enough for labor to progress, so I'd have to get an epidural. I mean, did you mention it probably can't relax because of all the Pitocin you have coursing through my veins? No. And at that point, I was in so much, like, I couldn't move. It was, it was, it was crazy. That, that little break between contractions makes a world of difference. And not having that... Um, when she said that, I just kind of was like, yeah, she's right. Like, I, I can't relax. I don't think I can do this without an epidural because I, I can't even move at this point. And uh, so we agreed. And within, I think, just like 10, 15 minutes, the anesthesiologist came in to give us the epidural. At this point, I think I was at like a seven or an eight centimeters. And what kind of made me mad is they didn't turn down the oxytocin or the epidural, which I felt like was dangerous. And that's one thing that we did ask them to do because I was like so shaky and I couldn't really hold still. They just kept it, they just kept it as it was and told me to hold as still as possible. But as soon as I got the epidural, that's when they turned off the oxytocin. Right after I got the epidural, uh, they turned it completely off, which I have no clue why. I felt like that was the time that like, all right, now I can take it. Let's keep it like, let's get labor going. But they just kind of told me to, uh, told me to rest for a little bit. I got a little bit of a fever at this point and was a little bit shaky. They uh, were trying to give me a bunch of different antibiotics. And so that's where my husband was doing a lot of the interactions. He was trying to keep on top of all of the meds that they were giving me. There was, there was actually even one of the antibiotics that they wanted to give me that him being a pharmacist told them no because it has a black box warning for pregnancy, but they gave it to me anyway. So there was kind of a lot of, just a lot of stuff going on at that point that things were kind of crazy. Like they were having uh, trouble hooking up the epidural, like the meds to the line going in my back. And then some of the other meds, I think the antibiotics, the nurses were asking my husband if he knew how to set it up, which that was a little bit of a worry point if you don't know how to set it up. It sounds like quite an operation they're running. Yeah, yeah. But things just kind of kept going. And the nurse came in and she kept kind of pressuring me into a C-section. She, she kept telling me that I needed to progress more or else they would have to do a C-section. Do I just want to do a C-section right now? Because I still haven't progressed much past that eight centimeters. So I kept telling them that that's not what I wanted. And 
uh, asking them to give me as long as possible to do labor on my own, to progress on my own before we had to do a C-section. And then at about, I think it was just after two o'clock, um, the doctor came in and she said that I needed to have a C-section because this is where things also kind of get a little messy. The doctor told me that I had to have a C-section uh, because I wasn't progressing. Then there were also other reasons, like in my medical records, it says that I had to have a C-section for the baby being in distress because she had an elevated heart rate, which that wasn't the case either. She was doing good, but kind of just were a little messy on reasons for the C-section there. So I, uh, we agreed because uh, she said we needed to have it, and I had put it off for as long as possible. So my concern was that it would be better to go in for a C-section, having it be planned, than to keep putting it off and end up having an emergency C-section. So uh, we agreed to have the C-section. They were getting everything in order. And by this time, my epidural meds had started to run out. The, uh, the mach machine was beeping that it was low. So we called the nurse in. And she just kind of looked at it and said that I still had some, so they were going to let it run out first. And then a little bit later, it beeped again that it was empty. And she came in and she looked at it and she just said that they would give me more in the OR and they were about to take me to the OR. So she just let them do that in the OR. So we were getting ready to uh, go down to the OR. How long had you been in the hospital at this point? This was about three in the morning. So it had almost been 24 hours since I had first gone to the hospital and about 20 hours since I had been induced, had my water broken. Okay. Uh, so as they were taking my husband to get him all dressed for the C-section, I just remember having the most distinct feeling that I needed to tell him how much I loved him and that I was going to die. And it was the weirdest, just kind of out of nowhere. But I felt so strongly that I should just tell him how much I loved him. And then after he left uh, to go get dressed, they were getting me already in the OR. What was your emotional state like? I was... I was disappointed that I was uh, going to have the C-section because that's not what I wanted. But that is going into delivery. That was kind of my like worst case scenario. I'll have to have a C-section, which isn't what I wanted or part of my plan. But the end goal is for a healthy baby. So I will do whatever to make sure that she's there. A C-section wouldn't be the end of the world. It's just not what I wanted. So I was a little disappointed, but it was, we felt before going down to the OR, I kind of felt like it was the better option. Like I said, I, I didn't want to go in for an emergency C-section and I didn't feel like they were going to wait long enough for me to continue progressing and go through delivery. So you just felt like they were kind of going to push you into a C-section no matter what? So maybe at least now it would be like a little bit more at a slower pace or on your terms a little bit more. Yeah, I felt like if I had progressed more and had gotten more to the point of like pushing or somewhere close to that, and then all of a sudden they said that I needed to go in for a C-section, I, I just didn't want that emergency. I would rather have it be planned and not have all, all the stress behind an emergency or just the possibility of something happening to my baby. So. Oh, right. And she had already said, I mean, you were already under the impression that your baby's life was in danger. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought the safer option for her, that was kind of the more important thing to me than what I had planned as my birth plan. Sure. So uh, when I got into the OR and they moved me over and they kind of started prepping me a little bit, I had told the anesthesiologist that I 
had complete feeling in my legs. I could uh, move my legs and I could feel everything. The epidural had ran out. And he didn't really respond to me. He just kind of like, okay, you know, we'll fix that. You said that he, he just, he didn't really say very much. And he just seemed like he was just kind of still going about what, whatever he was doing. Yeah. He was just kind of continuing this thing. Didn't really pay attention. Kind of like, not of like, okay, we'll fix that. But not, didn't really say anything to me. At this point, I started shaking a lot. I couldn't really hold my arm still or anything. And the anesthesiologist and the nurse, they both said that if I couldn't hold my arm still, that they would have to strap me down. So, you know, I was trying to hold still, but when you start shaking, it's just kind of out of your control and I I couldn't stop. Uh, So they strapped my arms down and uh, then the OB came in and she did her poke test on my stomach. And I told her, I said that I could still feel all of it, that I had feelings in my legs, I, I, w- I could feel everything. And she just started cutting and she just started going on with the surgery. I, I, I feel like at the beginning, I kind of went into a little bit of shock. And then immediately after I just started screaming, I was screaming and yelling all sorts of swear words, all sorts of everything and anything. Were you moving around on the table? I I, honestly, I don't know. The only thing that I, I was in so much pain that I, I just, I was just totally screaming. And I, there are only bits and pieces about my surroundings that I really remember. At some point, they brought my husband in. He was not there at the beginning of the surgery. They brought him in, and they told him that they were bringing him in to see if he could calm me down. I don't ever remember him being there. It never registered to me uh, that he was in the room. But he said that he came in, and he was rubbing my face, and he was trying to talk to me, but he knew that that I wasn't registering that he was there. We need to take a really quick break. And when we get back, we're gonna hear Amy's husband's account of what he saw when he walked in the room, when his wife was getting a C-section without pain medication. Be right back. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LP FM Lexington. Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. Hey, Birth Monopoly has some great new free resources out. Have you experienced obstetric violence while giving birth or seen it happen to someone else? Please share your story and join the voices of others around the globe at Birth Monopoly's worldwide map of obstetric violence stories. Go to birthmonopoly.com slash obstetric dash violence. And did you know we now have a free quick guide to informed consent and refusal during hospital birth? You can get your download at birthmonopoly.com at the top of the page. Okay, we're back with Birth Aloud Radio. And Amy, when we went to break, she was just about to describe what her what her husband was seeing when he came in the room during her C-section where she had told them that she didn't have adequate anesthesia. She could still feel what they were doing and they did not respond to that. And she was screaming and in a ton of pain. What her husband said was when I walked in, the first thing I saw was my wife with her back arched arms strapped to the table and her neck straight up with the back of her head pushing down on the table her neck, back, and head eerily contorted so I could see her face, eyes clenched shut, mouth wide open. The sounds I heard from her put me into another realm. The screams were so powerful, I swear I felt pain. I sat down next to her with the anesthesiologist on my right, the surgeon in front of me performing active surgery. I asked the anesthesiologist why she was feeling this much pain. He said, it's just some pressure. I said, no, this is not normal. 
complete powerlessness came over me as I realized they're going to let this happen to my dream girl, my perfect wife. I do the only thing I can do. I try to comfort her and let her know I'm there. I'm with you, Amy. I love you as I caress her face. But Amy is not registering that I'm even there. I'm right next to her, touching her and speaking, but no response because she is screaming that god-awful scream. I knew something was wrong, and I sensed the nervousness in the room. I made eye contact with the anesthesiologist and asked, what is happening to my wife? He mumbled nervously when the medical director, who was next to the surgeon, said, we brought you in because we thought you might be able to calm her down. I responded firmly, this is not normal. She can feel this. No one responded. That's when I saw the anesthesiologist pull out a white bottle. Obvious to me, as a pharmacist, it was propofol. Then they forced me to leave the room and my wife. I am in the hall alone for I don't know how long. They finally bring me my daughter, but I am so beside myself that I can't even register what this thing was at first. I'm so sure her mother is dead. I asked the nurse who brought me my girl, where is my wife? What is happening? Is she okay? She said, weren't you with her? I shake my head. She looks confused and says, she should be fine. I don't know. Ask the other nurse. Over the next two hours, I asked everyone. No one would tell me where my wife was or if she was even alive. I have to say for uh, my husband, that was, he's only cried, I think like twice in the last 10 years. Anytime that he goes back there, back there mentally, it it's just incredibly emotional for it. Like it's hard. It didn't just happen to me. He went through hell too with that. Well, I think it's true for a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of focus on what's going on with the woman, what's going on with the person giving birth. And when a traumatic birth happens, you know, it's primarily traumatic to that person, but a lot of times there's a partner, a husband, a father, a family member, a friend, they're having their own experience of the trauma too. It is also a valid trauma, even though it is not the same experience the other person is having. I mean, that's why you see doulas and nurses with PTSD from their jobs. It's not because it happened to them, but they're there. Yeah. What have the after effects been like for him? He has uh, lots of anxiety. He'll kind of go through sleepless nights. Just, it's been uh, very emotional for him to just in watching me suffer. When I wake up with nightmares, uh, when I have my panic attacks, it kind of, it goes back and puts him in, in that place. And it just, it's hard for him. He, it just, it took a hard toll on him that, um, that we had to go through that and that, but he, he gets a lot of anxiety, um, and just a lot of, uh, sadness and depression from it. How about you? I have a lot of anxiety. I have, uh, I get panic attacks. Is this new for you? Is this stuff that you didn't have before? Yeah, this is new for me. I I never really had any mental health issues beforehand. So this is all just kind of new. Uh, It's getting better little by little. I think the first month I did not sleep at all because I would stay up and I had to watch my baby to make sure that she was breathing which still happens to me not not nearly as often but I still get that where I'll wake up and I have to check on her I have to watch her or especially from uh, some of my nightmares and panic attacks but there are some there are good days too it's not all been terrible they're definitely some highs to those lows, but it's been a hard thing to uh, to work through. Uh, we call it that this is just like our survival mode. Like right now, we just have to survive, get through it, and eventually it will get better. Yeah, in the meantime, you have two parents caring for a newborn, struggling with anxiety, depression, panic attacks, signs of PTSD. Can you take us back to the day that it happened? what do you remember? We sort of cut out of your story when we shared what your husband had said that he saw. What, what do you remember 
the rest of that surgery and going into recovery? I remember at one point, the OB looked over to the anesthesiologist and she said, this isn't working. She can feel this. Then it just continued on. I have no sense of time. I have no sense of, I don't know how long for. I just remembered it just continued on. And uh, eventually they put a mask on me and they put me to sleep. Thank God. Yes. Thank God. That was, it was worse than your worst nightmare. That's kind of the only way I can uh, really describe it to someone who's just it was, it was worse than, than I would have ever imagined it could be. I mean, do you remember what it felt like? I know sometimes traumatic memories like that can just be sort of a blur. Can you actually remember what any of those feelings were? When I think about it, it's more of a blur besides the pain and the screaming. It'll come back to me in nightmares. I'll have nightmares where I'm totally reliving it. And it's like, I can feel it. And then I'll, I'll wake up in a panic and kind of have a panic attack. And then I can't sleep for however long till it passes. So it does come back to me sometimes through nightmares or sometimes a little bit uh, when I have a panic attack. But day to day, it's kind of a blur. I try to keep it a blur. That's better for me to deal with it. That's survival. Yep. I have to be able to take care of myself so I can be a good mom for my daughter. So I try to not think about it as much as possible. Did you have any any physical repercussions? In the recovery room, when I woke up, my voice was totally gone. I was a bit drowsy and I just saw all of the doctors from the operating room. They were, uh, they were standing around me. And then the next time I woke up in the recovery room, um, my husband was there. He asked me if I remembered what had happened. And uh, the OB just turned to him and said, let's hope he doesn't remember anything from it. And then I kind of fell back asleep after that. And when they took me up into, up into my room, but I woke up there. I just had the worst pain in my lower back and right side of my butt. And I had thought that they had switched hospital beds on me because it felt like there was a bar going into my back and I couldn't lay down. It was so painful. So I had I had my husband lay down and asked him, you know, if there was anything sticking up. He couldn't feel anything. It wouldn't go away. I couldn't sit down. I couldn't lay down. It just was the worst pain, kind of just like radiating through my lower back and butt. I pointed it out to the nurses, all the different nurses when they would change shifts. I pointed it out to the OB afterwards and they just kind of looked at it and all of their responses were like, huh, that's weird. And then they just continued on with what they were doing. At my follow-up appointment a week later, as soon as I showed it to uh, the nurse practitioner that I saw, she immediately was just like, oh, you have shingles. So I went a week with the shingles undiagnosed. That has left me with some permanent nerve damage that they say it's uh, post-herpetic neuropathy that might eventually go away. uh, But at this point, it doesn't look like it's going to go away. But she said that that was from the stress of the surgery kind of brought that to come out. So I'll tell you, that made uh, recovering with the C-section and taking care of a newborn lots of fun, not being able to lay or sit down. Wow. Well, and I can't imagine that, like how else that would affect your body to be under that kind of stress and contorted, I guess, you know, or at least straining for however, you know, a minimum of 30 minutes, you know, if not much longer. I have an appointment with the neurologist in in the next little bit. I'm waiting to get in to see him. But kind of the weird thing that started happening is the pain in my back and butt hasn't gone away. It's throbbing 24-7. And sometimes it gets worse. Sometimes it's pins and needles. In the last couple months, it progressed to randomly my legs will go weak. 
and I can't stand, I'll fall over, and I just kind of have to wait for that to pass. So I don't know if um, there was something from the epidural, if it hit the spine, or if I herniated a disc. Those were a couple things that someone threw out to us is might be a reason for that numbing and weakness in the legs. But in eight months, you haven't been able to get like a real diagnosis? I did for the neuropathy. Right, right. But not for the legs yet. I have to see, I'm still waiting to see the neurologist. And of course, they're always a few months out. So we're still waiting. I guess it's just like kind of mind blowing from the hospital's perspective to think like, you know, a patient went through this. How do you not help them after that? (laughs) To me, the other thing that I had a hard time with is my husband had just started working there. He was working there part time in the pharmacy. So that was kind of the other reason why we felt like we would be okay delivering our baby there because he worked there. He knew the medical director. So we thought like, you know, if you know them on a personal level, they are going to take care of you. But they wouldn't even uh, talk to him afterwards. We tried to talk to the medical director, find out where I was during the surgery. And the medical director just said that he didn't want to use his flout um, to find out where I was or to see if I was okay. And then afterwards, when he was talking to everybody, like no one, everyone just avoided us as much as possible. They kind of kept their time in our room real short, except for the anesthesiologist. He did come in and he apologized to us. What did he say? He said that he was sorry that that had happened to us and that there's uh, no reason to think that it would happen again when we decide to have another baby. We just kind of kept asking, like, so what happened? What went wrong? And he was like, well, no, it was a good epidural, but it ran out. He said that at the beginning, I didn't feel anything. That I was the epidural they gave you in labor? He's talking about? Yeah. And he was saying that next time, next time, because I'll have to have a C-section, which is not going to happen, but they would give me a spinal block instead, and that would work better. Uh, uh, Yeah. (laughs) The funny thing to me is going through our medical records, looking at it, Dr. Weiss, the OB, she actually ordered the C-section at the same time as my epidural. So before they even talked to us about it, she ordered that at 9 p.m. the day before. So um, That's an interesting piece of information. Yeah. So they were planning on it, and I think that's why they, they turned off the oxytocin. I think that's why the whole time it kind of just kept on. Like, they were already just waiting for me, planning on me doing a C-section. But if they knew that, if they were planning on that, then I feel like he should have just given me a spinal block then, if that's the better option. Well, and what kind of an emergency is it if you wait overnight? Yeah. That's not an emergency. I was never an emergency C-section. Okay. I mean, then what is it even? You know, I delivered on New Year's Eve. She was born early morning, December 31st. I think it was just... They just didn't want to be there. I was the only one in labor and delivery. And my husband said they kind of told them time and time again, like they were just waiting on me. Everyone was waiting on me. But then odd that they actually stopped speeding up your labor at the time that they give you the epidural. So you kind of wonder, like, we just wanted to hold on for this period of time (laughs) while we do other things or... Like once we started questioning them, when she raised my oxytocin to a 10, uh, we really started to pay attention to things and were questioning pretty much all the little things that they were doing. And I think they realized that we knew a lot more than the typical patient that comes in does as far as the questions and things that we were asking and saying that we wanted or didn't want. And so I think that was kind of their way to like, Push me into a C-section without me really being able to question it. They had turned it away. They had tried to hide it so we couldn't see it. But my husband went over and looked and everything. So we saw that they turned it off. But me not progressing was kind of a fact that I couldn't argue with almost. I mean, under those circumstances, who could progress? I, it's almost like they put a, they 
I hear these stories and I think, I mean, you did everything possible to make it so this person couldn't give birth. Like, yeah, yeah that's exactly how I thought. <laughs> and the nurse would come in uh, before she used the reason of me not progressing. Um, she would come in and be like, oh, well, the baby's in distress. We can see by her heart rate. And so we told her to point it out. And we're like, we've been watching the heart rate. Show us where the distress is. And she was like, oh, well, see these dips or these dips. That's a bad sign. And we were like, actually, no, that's typical with the contractions. Like that dip will be there type of a thing. And then she just kind of left the room. So we were like, all right, okay, they're trying to go for a C-section. Have you had anybody look at that strip? I mean, another no. nurse or doctor? Oh, actually, no, I did have a nurse look at it right after my sister is a nurse and her friend teaches labor and delivery for nursing students. So we had them look at it. Baby was fine. She did say that I was having static contractions when they raised the, the oxytocin. But Wow. I mean, that sounds like torture. That is exactly how I would describe it. And that's the thing that, like, to me, none of it had to happen. There was no reason for anything to go the way it did. I spent a long time kind of questioning and just, like, beating myself up a little bit because I couldn't figure out, like, why they would do it to me. Like, what, did they just not like us, you know? What, like, I... I felt like I was a good patient. Me and my husband were just like doing our own thing. We weren't bothering the nurses. I felt like I was a super easy patient. They just had to come in, take my vitals whenever they needed to. And pretty much, you know, I, it just took a long time for me to just, I guess, not beat myself up over that and what else I could have done and why they would do it to me. Why, why it happened the way it did. Because I, I guess I just, there isn't really an answer. And I think even if I did get an answer of why, I don't think it would actually help me. I don't think it would be satisfying enough. It wouldn't be a good enough reason, whatever the reason was. Sorry, going back to the last little bit of my story. Thankfully, my little girl was born healthy. That is something I, I think about almost daily. I am so grateful that she was healthy. So grateful that there were no problems with her. Because of anything, I would, I would take all the pain. I would take the torture. I would take everything over having any of it happen to her. For the first little bit, I did have a hard time with bonding a little bit. It definitely affected the bonding. I had a hard time with breastfeeding. Whoever, whoever's interested, I will say that skin to skin and the breast crawl really does work. My husband knew how much I wanted to do the skin to skin and the breast crawl. And because I wasn't there, he did it. And it was the funniest thing. She could always, anytime he was holding her, she could always find his nipple in an instant. All the time. But for me, she hated, she hated breastfeeding. It was, it was pretty much a fight all the time. But. Yeah. You know... You know, not to like go on a a total other tangent, but I feel like we haven't even delved into yet is babies' experiences of these kinds of situations. At least we can talk to women and we can get their stories. We don't even know what kind of effect these kinds of practices have on babies. I mean, other than, you know, the research that we have that shows that not doing skin to skin stresses them out and gives us worse health outcomes. We know that Pitocin and C-sections have a negative effect on breastfeeding. But I think there's a lot that we don't know about what it does to a neonate to have a mother in so much distress and fear and stress and what kind of stress babies are under as they're being born. Unnecessary stress. I think has an impact I think without a doubt, that would, I don't know how it couldn't impact them to some degree. Yeah, breastfeeding was always a struggle with her. And I think that's a, a huge part of it. I also think in the hospital, they kept, uh, they kept taking her to, like when they would take her to wear or different things or when I was asleep, they would take her so I could sleep, which I didn't want at all. I, 
I had voiced that she is either within my site or my husband's. Like she is never leaving one of our sides. But they would take her and feed her from a bottle. I, I think they were trying to help and I think they were trying to let me sleep. But it really made breastfeeding a big struggle after she kind of got used to the bottle and she didn't have the skin to skin or the breast crawl with me. So eventually I just gave up the fight because it would be her screaming until eventually she would latch on. Ugh, I've been there. I mean, the stress on top of like all the, everything else you're going through, the stress of difficult uh, difficulty with breastfeeding is just. Yeah. And it's hard too. Cause it's like, it's stressful. And then it's just emotionally, it's just, it's sad. I had a really hard time with just like, I didn't feel like I was a mom for a long time. And then not being able to breastfeed kind of added to that. I felt like from the delivery, I had already missed out on so much. I didn't get to uh, see her be born. Neither did my husband. You know, we weren't there for her first moments of life. During pregnancy, it was almost like surreal that I had a baby in me. And it was like, I, you know, I know that this is my daughter, but it just never felt real. And that's kind of how it was afterwards for a little bit because I had just gone through hell and then all of a sudden they're just handing me a baby and I just was in so much pain. I was under so much uh, stress and anxiety that I didn't really get a moment where I held her and felt like this is this is my daughter, this is my baby. And that was really hard for me. It, it took about a good month for me to start feeling like I was really bonding with her. I think I was bonding with her before that, but I just, in my mind, it wasn't good enough because it didn't make up for what I felt like I had missed out on. And the breastfeeding just totally added to that and the, I so badly wanted to have that bonding with her and it just wasn't, wasn't happening, wasn't the great experience because she was screaming and crying and I didn't want to make her miserable and I felt like I was punishing her but that definitely definitely made things harder for me emotionally yeah did you talk to any lawyers about what happened to you we did I actually called probably dozens of lawyers within the last six months and every lawyer they would look at it and some of them would review my medical records and they would all say while this is uh, negligence and malpractice because your baby is healthy we're not able to take your case or we're not interested in taking your case which has been extremely frustrating and it's hard because it, it feels like people don't care and it feels like no one's willing to hold the doctors or the hospitals accountable because as long as the baby's fine nothing else matters but that's where it kind of keeps me wanting to fight and keeps me going is because until I am able to make something happen, I feel like the doctors just know that they can, as long as the baby's fine, they can do whatever they want because no one's going to hold them accountable. It's been, it's been a journey and so far we haven't found a lawyer, but I'm not giving up and I'm, I'm still looking and still, still working on it. Thank you. I admire you for doing that. I know it's really difficult it's, it's really difficult. It's, it's hard to be dealing with the trauma and then having to relive the trauma and talk about the trauma in order to try to take some action about the trauma. I mean, it's just, it's a really difficult thing. After, after the first few weeks, I kind of learned to just totally separate myself from the experience. So that way I could be able to really bond with my baby because I felt like it was always just hanging over me and I was so sad, so anxious that I I knew no matter how much time I spent with my baby, like that wasn't the uh, type of quality of the time that I wanted to be spending with her. So I kind of learned to, when I'm with my baby, I push everything aside. I don't allow myself to think about anything. I don't allow myself to go back there at all. When I'm with her, it's just focusing on her and it is just being happy around her, no matter 
how anxious or sad I am or anything like that. Kind of a fake it till you make it. Um, she wakes up and I'm not in a great mood. I still go in excited. And she's, she's such a happy baby that soon enough, I really am happy to be with her and spending time with her. And that has made a world of difference. She's like your therapy a little bit. She really, she really is. I'm sure everybody, well, I know everybody says that their baby's perfect, but she is just the perfect little girl and she's so happy and she's so smiley. Whenever I walk into the room or uh, whenever she wakes up and sees me, she just starts kicking her feet and waving her arms and just is so excited. And how could you not be happy to see, you know, your little baby excited to see you? So it's, that's made a huge difference. And now I feel like, I have a great bond with her and now I feel like I was kind of able to catch up from the rough start and she is definitely um, especially on my bad days she is kind of my reason to to keep going to uh, take care of myself and to try and get better to try and move on so I, I can't say it enough but I am so grateful that she is happy and healthy and that she's okay after everything. What do you think about when people say, at least your baby's healthy? I mean, I think it's one thing for you to say it. What do you think about when people respond to your story by saying that? that? I think that they need to, they definitely need to understand that as a mom, and I'm sure for all the other moms that have been through a traumatic birth, that we are grateful that our baby's healthy and we we would do anything for our babies. You know, I've seen some people say like, oh, well, I would die for my baby. And it's true, I, I would, but that doesn't mean that we should. That doesn't mean kill me. Yeah, I mean, I would, if I had to do it all again, so she could, a healthy baby, I would. But it doesn't mean that I wasn't tortured and it doesn't mean that what happened to me was wrong, you know? That's just something that I think that people say when they can't put themselves in the situation at all. Because if people really understood that, there's no way that they would say that to another mom. And it's hard because I think that's why a lot of moms don't speak up. And I think that's why stories like mine and other traumas happen so much because moms are made to feel like as long as their baby was okay, it doesn't matter, but it does matter, and it needs to stop happening. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.